1: That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the Dignity dignity of man.
0: Ah, one great old president, Lyndon Johnson, who did care a lot about the public good and having a government that actually served the people. At the conclusion of the War to Preserve the Union, also known as the Civil War, the president then pledged to restore a government of, by, and for the people. And no question, government of the people has to include keeping the citizenry safe from attacks, protected from war on our soil. Providing security is certainly, certainly one of the proper functions of government. Some today see providing national security as the only proper function of government. But what if the price of security is a serious diminishment of our traditional freedoms. Of course, Benjamin Franklin has a famous quote, Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. That quote often comes up in the context of new technology and concerns about government surveillance, as it should. America was never supposed to be a national security state. That model fits the old, rather unappetizing governments of, say, East Germany or the Soviet Union, Uh, not we who treasure our freedom as guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. On September 11, 2001, nearly 3,000 lives were lost with the creation of a new, extremely well-funded national security state. A question is, how much of American democracy and traditional freedom was also lost on that day? How much of our national treasury has been spent on this new behemoth called the National Security State and how much actual security has that investment yielded To answer these questions and more I'm very pleased to have with us Karen J Greenberg director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and author of The Least Worst Place Guantanamo's First 100 Days her most recent book is Rogue Justice The Making of the security state. Karen Greenberg, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, let's let's start with a look at the scope of our new national security state. Columnist Tom Engelhart notes that since 9-11, untold sums of money have gone into building up the national security state and that it created a system of global surveillance, the likes of which Uh, would once have been inconceivable even for rulers of a totalitarian state. Two questions. One, any idea how much of our taxpayer dollars have been spent on the new national security state? And the second question is, how many agencies or departments are in the national security state?
1: Excellent questions. Um, it, nobody has an exact number of what's yes, been spent, figured, yeah. either on our military, in, you know, interventions and all the other uh, efforts that have been taken to, in the name of national security, bureaucratic wise, policy wise. But what you what you can remember is that one of the goals of Bin Laden was to bankrupt the United States. And in the days after 9-11, uh, as one uh, book reported early on, he was fixated on the notion of how much it was costing the United States. So there's sort of an ironic twist to the fact that the United States did spend so much money um, after 9-11 on so many things. In terms of agencies, the real question at the heart of that is how many uh, how many departments, divisions uh, in the country these days are actually arms of the intelligence agency. Oh, wow. when, uh, um, and that's really what happened was the, ins- the spread of the intelligence uh, strategy, the intelligence agenda to so many other agencies. One of the ways in which the government transformed itself after nine eleven was to create, for good reason, I think, mostly for information sharing and to consider all the possible e- equities and the ramifications of any policy, was to have an enhanced um, interagency process. So that meant that yeah. when issues of national security came up, you would have... You know, you'd have the CIA, but you'd also have the Department of Justice and the Department of Treasury and the Department of Defense and eventually Homeland Security when it was created, and the FBI, which even though it's part of the Department of Justice, was also a player. And that created a a space for the spread of the intelligence uh, agenda throughout the country, and that was very much tied to the increase in state powers generally.
0: And I can understand how before 9-11, it's like uh, one hand had no idea what the other hand was doing. There were all these different agencies and did not coordinate or share intelligence. So that, you know, you you can see that that had to be done. But then then again, there was something, as you mentioned, created the uh, Homeland Security, the Department of Homeland Security, which has, uh, in the name of fighting terrorism, militarized local police forces and given them tremendous new uh, powers, kind of a, dare I say, police state powers that have come about since then. So I don't know if you even include that in looking at uh, you know, what the national security state is and, and what, uh, what kind of investments have gone into that.
1: You know, there has been um, reports of the kind of taking military equipment and giving it to local police departments yes. rather than just destroying it or whatever else they were going to do with it. Um, but, but, the, but the Department of Homeland Security actually is a very mixed bag, and they are. They, I think they're underappreciated in a way. They are. Um, it, it, they, it's an agency that was given twenty-two different agencies to be the administrative head of, many of which do very different things. So coordinating anything inside of DHS is its own problem. But And I know they have a lot of criticism, and often there's sort of a sigh of desperation, if you mention doing something at, at Homeland Security. But actually, they, they have at least identified some of the more important issues that have to be um, dealt with, and they haven't they haven't found um, a sweet spot in terms of getting a constituency across the board in, in the country, but at least they're 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 trying. And I think I think we have to give them more credit than just as spreading um, you know military uh, materials to police departments, which I think is a policy that has been under review right now for some time.
0: Well, yeah. And, you know, there has to be national security. There's there's no question about that. The question we're discussing now is, you know, how, how can we actually achieve national security? So what this vast new national security state, I want to look at, what specifically they do you know and we have since our founding and if if you were to ask donald trump to name the three branches of government i seriously doubt he could do that but it's always been executive legislative and judiciary and is it isn't an exaggeration to call the new national security state apparatus a fourth branch of government how how much of an exaggeration would that be
1: well it's it's a it's a legitimate question. I think that um, I think you have to understand two things. Um, both of one of which you alluded to when you said you know just we'll lay out the programs, which you know I try to do in my book, and I and I do. Um, but the layers of secrecy that surrounded so much of what was done in the war on terror that are coming to light, either because other countries expose them, or because of the Snowden leaks, or because of um, cases that come into court, or because the government themselves decides to release things, the layers of secrecy are are somewhat staggering when you really think about how much um, the American public didn't know, most of the Congress didn't know, um, many public officials didn't know. And that's, you know, then you start to say, well, what actually happened? First, we have to reconstruct what happened, which is one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. The other thing is that when you're talking about balance of powers, it's actually very important because... One thing that happened during the War on Terror was a change in the nature of the American presidency, and the balance of power when it came to issues related to terrorism and related issues was, was literally not in place. So as the commander-in-chief powers got stronger and stronger in matters of surveillance, detention, interrogation, even terrorism trials... Um, and then targeted killings, you see sort of a an undoing of some of the basic principles that the country was founded upon. Executive killing, executive detention, executive interference with courts, or even worse, what we saw is court deference to the fact of national security. Numerous times, courts said, look, it's just not our our job. It's not our business. It's the president's business. It's the executive's business to keep the country safe and make these, issues, make these decisions. We're not going to interfere. And so, with the exception of the Supreme Court, which was willing to weigh in on Guantanamo and the detention issues several times over the course of the war on terror, there was a sort of negligence, is probably a less... Um, a a less attractive word, but deference by the courts. And I think that's taken a real toll on the integrity of the courts in the United States.
0: Yeah, I guess there's a term benign neglect, sort of. Maybe they could uh, apply that. I don't know. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, which is a very substantial effort we all have to participate in. Our guest today is Karen Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Her new book is Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. Now, there again, back to the uh, separation of powers. One of the kind of unique prideful things about America and American history is our separation of power. Uh, One is supposed to be kind of a check on the other, judicial, the legislative, and the executive. None is supposed to have uh, too much power. Uh, Presidential power. I mean, we've we've had presidents through the years. I certainly think of, of Nixon, who was chafing to have more presidential power, but it's supposed to be limited by Congress, the presidential power, the war-making. Uh, this is kind of gone by the wayside. The Constitution uh, directs that Congress shall have power over declarations of war. Well, I've seen that uh, abrogated again and again and again. But how specifically do you think, since uh, the, the war on terror, the national security state, Talk about presidential power, how it's been uh, changed, if it's been changed, and in, in what ways.
1: Sure. Well, the first thing is, so there are two things. One of which you alluded to was Congress has taken a lot of criticism for not questioning enough in the war on terror. Actually, early on, Congress showed a um, a, a, resistance to too much security at the, um, cost, at the risk of sacrificing liberty. Russ Feingold was one of the individuals, uh, in the Senate at the time yes. that pushed back against original versions of um, of, of the Patriot Act and of other subsequent um, executive orders or other uh, legislative recommendations with the idea that there really had to be a respect for the Constitution, no matter how much we wanted to k- keep the country safe. And what happened was uh, that a series of memos was written from inside the Justice Department, from the Brains Trust of the Justice Department, the Office of Legal Counsel, and mm-hmm. they were written mostly by a um, uh, now Berkeley uh, law professor by the name of John you, and oh, yes. these uh, these memos basically created a new legal regime authorization within the government that the executive followed uh, the reasoning of. And they applied to detention, to definitions of the enemy, um, and to a number mm-hmm. of issues in, that, that were de- delineated in the war on terror, including the legality of, of what had before been considered torture. And the premise... Of these memos was that the calculus for how to understand presidential power had changed after nine eleven, and this was a very deep felt belief that the Constitution had to be rethought Oof. and reevaluated and re re reconsidered um, re re actually, so that the president did have much vaster powers, and that's what created. Um, a framework for the kinds of policies that we've been talking about. And in fact, it turns out that's very, very hard to push back against. President Obama has not necessarily given up po- those powers. Right. Um, and so that is, it's hard, you know, to give up powers once they're <laughs> twisted in the way they've been twisted. And um, especially when you have an oppositional Congress, Um and so it's, it's going to be a long battle back to reduce this enhanced view of the presidency that we now have. And it's, it's hard to see how that's going to happen when we're still in the throes of um, um, a, a sense of, of fear when it comes to the war on terror.
0: Mm, fear is so powerful, as Franklin Roosevelt knew. What about, you know, we've talked about the executive uh and and the uh, legislative what about the the judiciary i know that there was some legal testing of the president's right to order uh you know actions against alleged terrorists uh with regard to torture and other or i should say enhanced interrogation pardon me uh but has it has it been fully gone through the system has this new presidential power fighting enemy combatants uh, been been fully tested through the court system, or do, should we expect to see a lot more of that?
1: Oh, um, it hasn't been tested. Uh, it's been um, pushed aside no. often. The only time it had, the one, I mean, there are a couple of ways in which it's been tested. One famously is the um, Patriot Act surveillance uh, bulk collection of, um, of internet uh, data, and that was the you know end to end communication. Who's calling who for how long, from where to what number, and that was a bulk collection uh, um, program that. And the ACLU tried time and time and time again to challenge in the courts, and court after court, with maybe one exception, said you don't have the right to challenge this because it's a secret program. You couldn't possibly know that they that you have the right to bring this this charge that you're being surveilled illegally by the government. And with the Snowden revelations, they were able to bring this this um, case and to have standing. and Uh, Lo and behold, the courts said, absolutely, this is an illegal program. And weeks later, the Congress agreed, and they seemed to agree, and they sunsetted or ended the Patriot Act as we knew it and passed the Freedom Act without that particular program in it. So there's been some pushback that has come from a combination, in that case, of Congress and the courts. In other cases like detention, the Supreme Court has time and time again said, look, these detainees have to have rights there in US custody. And finally, in 2008, the Supreme Court made it clear that they had to have the right to challenge their detention in federal court. The upshot of that has been disastrous. The lower courts, federal courts, court, it was one court, the DC court, DC District Court, let a number of individuals um, free in terms of their habeas, saying, look, you're right, there there are no grounds for your detention. And the circuit court pushed back on it and said, I'm sorry, but that is not a a proper reading of the evidence. You're not evaluating the right way. And so the result is that the Supreme Court's decision to let the detainees challenge their habeas has come to naught.
0: Well, that's actually pretty scary stuff. And you know habeas corpus is a basic foundational right of americans you as a law professor understand that uh, i've been with the uh, american civil liberties union but what what is habeas corpus and and how has the national security state affected this foundational right and has it markedly improved under obama and why or why not so habeas corpus well, I try- the idea was it would be
1: improved um, because of a decision, the, the decision I mentioned, Boumediene, in the Supreme Court at the end of the Bush administration. But during the Obama administration, the courts did not allow that to have any future. You know, one thing that, that Obama has done, however, is in inside Guantanamo, as opposed to inside the federal courts, there has been an uh, acceleration, an incredible acceleration uh, since last November, so since for almost a year now, of detainees being able to challenge their detention at Guantanamo in a, in what are called periodic review boards, and a number of those individuals have been cleared for release, and so the pace has been accelerated, and the decisions have not always gone against the detainees, and that's why whenever you see the statistics on, on uh, Guantanamo, you'll say, oh, there are you know sixty one detainees, there twenty have been cleared for release, that kind of if that's what they mean. They were Cleared before these periodic review boards, so I think the Obama administration and Obama himself take the idea of being able to challenge this attention extremely seriously, um, and and in a way, the the DC court has made it more difficult for them by 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 making the habeas process so um, so le- le- so not fruit, fruitless actually mm. and. Yeah the Guantanamo process has actually become more of a forward-looking mechanism for challenging detention.
0: And habeas corpus is basically how would you describe it in in layman's terms?
1: It's, it it's being able to challenge the basis on which you are, dete- uh, are detained. Right. Can I be detained? Is there evidence to detain me? It's that simple. (laughs) And early (laughs) on in the war on terror, early on in the war on terror, there were a number of individuals inside the United States that were put in enemy combatant status without access to the regular courts, um, and they brought attempted to bring habeas challenges. And the courts, like the Supreme Court later on, were respectful for the most part of the right of somebody in custody to challenge their detention. So this is a a very fundamental, basic right um, Mm -hmm. of Americans.
0: Well, I'd say so. And, you know, as uh, Ben Franklin said uh, about uh, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither. Now, you, no doubt, and I certainly have heard a lot of people say, well, I haven't done anything wrong. I, I, you know, I got nothing to hide. So, yeah, if it if it's going to get us some more security, then, uh, yeah, by all means, uh, peer into everybody's uh, computer and figure out what everybody is doing. What's the best uh, uh, response to that? You know, people really want the security. And I, I've heard people say that, that this guy Snowden, oh, he's an enemy. He is an enemy. He should be taken out and shot. People have actually said that. Talk about some of this stuff, if you would, please.
1: Of course. So there's there's a couple of things here. One is that this is why presidential power um, can be so dangerous if untethered. If you have a president like Obama who is a constitutional law professor and has an understanding and a respect of the rule of law, you may be able to get away with too much presidential power or a structural imbalance of power the way we've seen it. But what if somebody comes into office who wants to use it in an irresponsible way? Yes. What if somebody comes into office who says, I know who the enemy is, like George Bush did, like Obama <laughs> has with targeted kill- then who's the the enemy that gets detained, that gets tortured, that gets interrogated, that gets, you know, whatever, um, surveilled? Um, it it's that's why we have a balance of power because it can't all depend on the fact that whoever uh, president will do everything they're supposed to do. That you mentioned Nixon before. The, the, the excess of power is not something unheard of in American history, or any other country's history, for that matter. Oh, yeah. And it's just... So that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, the national security state. National security against What? Exactly. Mm. Um, It's very interesting now. We're at a very interesting period, I think, of thinking about our security as a nation. We've been fighting a battle for 15 years with terrorism, which has morphed and changed, and so we're still fighting it with all of our agents and agencies. However, there's no question that the question of security is changing very rapidly to being one of the nation-state again, and not primarily or um, the non-state actor, and so now there's a sense that we really have to think, after having talked about insecurity and fear all this time, what's going to happen when there actually is um, a question of n- nuclear confrontation what's going to happen with Korea and Russia and all the other countries in the world that are now sort of front and center in terms of American national security vision so I think that that now um, the issue of how to talk in a legitimized way about fear, about risk, about security is very fragile. So, you know, you asked about what are the repercussions of that. I think that's another one. Um, so, you know, that's a partial answer to what you asked.
0: Well, sure. And uh, Snowden, I mean, he does figure uh, highly in all this, and I, I would recommend the movie, by the way, for anybody who hasn't seen it. It's pretty good. Did he endanger any lives? How much it seems like he his work really did have a significant effect on on sunsetting that odious section two one five Do you know i mean sh- should people see him as a as a hero or or a bad guy or neither i
1: uh, first, of all, I mean, I don't know how people should see him. I see him as somebody who is essential to helping the country get its, get its, uh, re- restore its sense of uh, civil liberties and constitutional principles. One of the th- the movie I I happen to like a lot. Um, the movie um, tries to make the point that there. That that the kinds of costs that oh, you know um, lives or lives lost or potential lives lost were were not really pertinent to this because they give the sense that Snowden a gave up his materials and b um, was very careful about what he he did um, let out himself. Um, all of that aside, though, there's no question that this country is is better off knowing what's being done in its name. Um, and and you know it does seem that if he had been responsible for X, Y, and Z, don't you think we would know it? I, I
0: don't would,
1: think that anybody would would keep that information. So um, I think so. That's how I see Snowden.
0: No, well, definitely. And I, I thought it was interesting that uh, y- y- you know how what what is security security against what? And and Tom Engelhardt again said that the national security state is a state within a state. I thought this was interesting that is joined at the hip to terrorism. What what do you think he meant by that and and do you agree?
1: Yeah, I think I I mean it's interesting because Tom and I have have somewhat different views on the national security state, but the national security state is about terrorism and has been since 9-11. It's, it's, it's justified on, on the idea that there is an amorphous, asymmetric enemy out there that is metastasizing in a way that we don't understand and can't stop, largely because of the Internet, and that, therefore, anything we need to do is... Um, is important. Just like right after nine eleven, anything we needed to do was was justified because because um, you know we'd been attacked on our soil and thousands and thousands of people had been right. killed. Right. And you know it was a sign of just sort of just shock. And I mean, one of the ways to constructively address this is that after something like nine eleven. You know, it does make sense. It may not be preferable, but it does make sense that a country would go to the max in trying to redress uh, the crime, figure out what happened, reorganize itself. The problem that happened here was that there was no reset button, that there was no 18 months out or a year out or even two years out when people inside the administration began to question what was happening, and they were categorically... Treated in a way that they left the government, and as a result, um, th- that reset button was never considered and never happened. And I think if it had happened, if the Bush administration could have said, "You know what, this this is overreaching. Um, mm. Let's just roll some of this back um, instead of embracing it," um, I think that would have been would have saved the country from a lot of unnecessary um, turmoil and chaos over the issue of national security.
0: And of course there's always the question of how effective has it been as as I said in the very beginning you know one of the roles of government is to defend uh our you know our freedom and our liberty and you know our our very lives and, and you know how effective has it been really there 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 have been some i think they could be called terrorist attacks on US soil since 9/11 of course none anywhere near the scale of that attack, how effective is the national security state at stopping terrorist attacks and in identifying potential attackers? That may not be answerable, but I'll ask it anyway.
1: I think, they're, I think we're pretty good after spending however many trillions of dollars, to get to your, your first question, <laughs> however many trillions of dollars on our law enforcement, our intelligence agencies. I think there's a, a vast amount of knowledge and expertise. That doesn't mean, you know, you're going to be 100% safe, but you're going to be pretty close to it. Um, and, and, and the, but, but trusting that apparatus is what we're still lacking. You still have yet to see a public official come out and say, "You know what? we're pretty darn safe. They will not say it. It's like they don't want to jinx it. they don't yeah. they actually perhaps don't believe it. But the one thing that Americans could use that would re um, calibrate the situation between you know liberty and security would very much be willing be Trust us. Trust not just the government. Trust us as a society to be able to understand these things and take care of them, whether they're abroad or here. To collaborate with the um, and coordinate with the rest of the world on deterring terrorists. And and um, no leader has been willing to. Take that step, so that you know that's unfortunate.
0: well, certainly uh, we've seen through the many, many decades that no uh, elected official wants to look soft on crime, for example, and you know these attacks you don't want to look soft on terrorism. I, I can't imagine how any elected leader, uh, anybody running for office would even dare go there. What would you say to uh, is there a way that that you know somebody running for office could? Could frame it, say, somebody like, uh, uh, um, uh, what's his name from uh, Wisconsin? Uh, I can't think of his name, who's running for re-election uh, while he was ousted, uh, but he fought against uh, the the Patriot Act. Russ Feingold, that's it. I knew yeah, it would come Russ to Feingold. me. Yeah, um, And I certainly I hope I mentioned
1: he, him earlier. Yeah,
0: I hope he makes it again. Yep. Does, is he setting an example for how it can be framed that, you know, you can be for security and also for— Defending freedom.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a number of individuals throughout the Congress um, and the the executive even who who really believe that there needs to be this this balance. The the question really is not whether or not there are enough people who want that balance, who honestly want that balance. The question is how to understand the roots of this current wave of violence, including terrorism, that has become more pronounced in the United States over the past couple of years, some of it in the name of ISIS. And the question is, what is that all about? And how are we going to understand that outside of our normal understanding of terrorism, because it really is something different? Um, and so um, that's really the question is, do we need to understand as a society a way in which to, to handle some of these issues before they happen in a way that is respectful of civil liberties and respectful of the individuals who live in the country? And I think that's the challenge now. And I think some of Washington is turning its mind towards thinking about the, the civil society part. Um, mm-hmm. of the country and ways in which this could be very important, not in service to the national security state, but in service to the sense of, of community, um, a holistic community inside uh, the country.
0: That's a very interesting point, I think. Who are they serving, the national security state or t- t- our, our values and our actual yeah. security? For those yeah. who just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. We're talking in, uh, about uh, the national security state and how well it works or it doesn't work. Our guest is Karen Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, author of a new book, Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. It sounds like you were about to say something.
1: I was going to say that um, one just to get to your point about effectiveness, I like that you keep returning to this word. You know, there's something, this is both good news and bad news. Um, mm. One of the things that, that's interesting about what policies have ended that were overreaching on the part of the presidencies of, of Bush and um, Obama is the lesson to take away, which is that mm. the two things that have really sunsetted to pick you know the term of art from the Patriot Act sure. one is the, um, the one of the programs the first program that Snowden revealed the mega uh, data program mm-hmm. metadata program that I referred to earlier the mm-hmm. bulk collection mm-hmm. the second one is torture Yes. You know, torture ended under uh, Obama. Pretty, I mean, Bush pretty much. But Obama came in and and made it very clear, retracted the memos uh, that had um, authorized it, etc. But if you look closely at those decisions and what happened, what you realize is that they didn't sunset. Really, I don't think, for civil liberties reasons, meaning that the civil liberties community and advocates of constitutional principles, et cetera, human rights groups, had been pushing back against this kind of surveillance throughout the war on terror, keeping it alive in our minds. The same thing with torture, you know, day after day, month after month, trying to bring it through the courts, trying to bring public awareness and therefore protest to these issues. But if you look at what happened with surveillance and with torture, what happened was this, that congressional committees and government committees and even executive committees were convened to study the policies and determined that they didn't work that they weren't effective right that is what happened with the, the metadata um uh, issue, as much as any any civil liberties protest, at least that's what I think. And the same thing with torture. Diane Feinstein yes. spent had her staff spent years researching 6 million documents, writing a 6,000-page report, of yes. which we've seen 500 pages in an executive summary. Yeah. And what is the conclusion <laughs> they make? Torture didn't work to get the evidence that prevented any specific attacks, etc., etc. So it, this is this is an uncomfortable I think or at least troubling fact which is that they didn't sunset because the rule of law right. won out over the rules of security
0: yeah that's that is troubling to me too I mean I would like to think that uh, you know there was a lot of noise made saying hey we don't do this kind of thing it's it's against our our traditions and principles these enhanced interrogation techniques we we did move away from the torture but all those loud voices of civil liberties people, how much influence did they have in in this backswing away from that, or was it not much at all?
1: I think they had a lot of influence in keeping it alive and and, and sort of shaming those who hadn't paid attention to the illegalities and the to some extent the unconstitution, unconstitutionalities of it, even though that was never recognized in the court in the um, met, metadata right. program. So I think they had a lot to do with keeping this issue alive. I think it was essential. I think it was important. I think they created the the evidence and so that this story could be told the way it needs to be told. Um, but in terms of its actual ending, it was the issue of ineffectiveness. that seemed to be the sine qua non to get the country to move away from it.
0: Interesting. I, I am reminded of the ending of... Uh, Uh, The prohibition against alcohol, it didn't end because it was wrong and caused great harm. It ended because the government needed the money from alcohol taxes. (laughs) Let's face it. And you write that, never mind right or wrong, quote, programs that just didn't work as security measures, uh, and this, not government overreach, was the crucial factor in bringing each of them to an end. I think that's yeah. that's, that's really inter- interesting. And there's a real coincidence that, quote, the conclusions of the experts and the officials listening to them coincided with the recommendations of civil libertarians who had opposed the policies all along, made the decisions look far more like human rights victories than they were. That's kind of depressing. <laughs> so what about these civil liberties uh, traditional values arguments going forward has a precedent been set that that these arguments really don't hold a lot of sway. That concerns me a lot.
1: No, I think that the the precedent has been set that when the courts actually pay attention and are not you no. Know, do not defer and look at these things legally. Whether it's detention issues, um, you know, uh, the right to challenge your detention in court issues, whether it's surveillance, whether it's interrogation, that the courts will rise to the occasion if they are if they see that they can do that. If they're given the space and allowed to hear the argument. Remember, these courts kept saying you can't bring this. You don't know enough. You don't have standing. You, you don't have the right to bring this before yeah. court. But the fact Fact is that if, if the courts will at least hear these cases, they will see that there is a discrepancy between sometimes the law and sometimes you know constitutional principles when it comes to many of these war on terror uh, policies. I mean, the other side of this is that some of these policies um, – that were just under the uh, under the radar, and many of them secret, uh, one in particular that had to do with foreign intelligence surveillance eventually became law. And so that's another part of it, when Congress can acquiesce by passing laws that codify a program that stretched uh, constitutional principles. So that's, all, that's a whole other issue that we haven't talked about, but that too is something to think about when you say, well, we want Congress in there, and we want these things to be law, but then, when they are law you 're stuck with them, and so that 's another one of the war on terror um, dilemmas, which is when you 're a civil libertarian and you 're pushing for something to change, you can end up with pushing for instead passage of a law that stretches constitutional principles or legal principles beyond what you were really aiming for
0: ooh, the old law of unintended consequences. Ooh, I hate when that happens. Uh, and and but I wonder about you know I want to stay with this uh, argument that you were just uh, going on a little bit about uh, you know the this, this sway of civil liberties. So are you suggesting? I'm not sure I heard this right. That if if uh, the civil liberties argument is pushed too hard and the courts or Congress comes down on it, it could have the effect of of actually chilling civil liberties.
1: You know, you you never know. I think the civil—I don't think that's something. If you're a civil liberties advocate, the way I am, and the way people who you know advocate professionally for the American Civil Liberties Union and other groups, I I don't think that's a worry at all. I think the idea is educating the American public to understand what it is they um, can lose, and more importantly, perhaps what it is their children can lose in Mm. in in giving up their rights to privacy, their rights to. Understanding, being able to not be detained for some kind of secret reason, their um, their rights to really have access to due process and all that that entails, and I, you know, you don't. These are these are um, these are categories that you don't want whittled down mm. because if they are, you you really don't know how they can spread. And one of the one of the uh, words that's often been used in the war on terror is mission creep. That something that starts in one category, like for for a terrorist, could spread to something else. And and you really, you know, that's not just um, some kind of overreaction. That is, is a legitimate concern when you're thinking about protecting the Constitution. That's what this country is about. It's about building its 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 community and its society around a set of principles that we used to be very proud of and that many people still are proud of. And Absolutely. that was the experiment. And, and and the idea of the civil libertarians in court and out of court is to make sure that we keep that oath. And that's the worry of the war on terror is that it is so watered down. Um, the, the, the communal... Um, devotion, you know, commitment to that oath that there's a problem, and and we don't know how to exactly address this next generation on those points.
0: Wow, that is interesting, and it's a lot to think about, and, you know, we were founded, I think, uh, at least in part, on the notion of the common good, and I've long thought about how amazing the vision of our founders was back in the 18th century uh, in your article uh, in Tom Graham, you write that the liberties designed almost a quarter millennium ago by the founding fathers, uh, the founders, I would say, because there had to be a lot of women involved there behind the scenes. Anyway, still turn out to be curiously well aligned with the security of this country and the safety of Americans. So how how brilliant were they, the founding People uh, and how did, you know how is it so well aligned? In what way is it so well aligned with the security and safety of Americans today?
1: No, that's why it's so amazing. You know, it takes you, you look at this, you think about it, you participate in in the discourse that's going on, and then it sort of just hits you over the head that that when they went going back to our earlier conversation, when torture was. Determined to be ineffective by the Feinstein Committee's report, and when surveillance policies were determined to be ineffective by first a presidential review uh, committee and then by another board um, inside the government, a, a commission by the government. When these, when when time and time again you find out that they didn't work, you begin to wonder how is it that the things that the Constitution ruled against are are the things that were actually made us weaker, and what made us stronger, in a way, was not liberty for liberty's sake, but there is something about this. And I'll give you an example, uh, just an example to try to make sure. it clear and not so abstract. One of the things that happened during the war on terror was a commitment to or a, a, an embrace of uh, quantity over quality. That, to give you an example, obviously surveillance. That the more, the better. You know, we just get everybody's um, right. uh, communications. Then we'll be able to find the terrorists. We'll just search for certain numbers, right? For certain um, tag yep. tags, right? That's one thing. Guantanamo. Let's just round up everybody we can and bring them to Guantanamo, and we'll figure it out when when, when get there, right? It's bound <laughs> to make us safer. Sure. And there, are, let's let's in you know let's round up Muslims right after nine eleven. That will that'll make this. These are not, American law is built upon the principle that individual suspicion and focusing on actual evidence is what keeps, is is what's right in terms of rights and liberties, and also what keeps us safe, because that's the smart way to figure out who wants to do damage to you or you to the society. And that's that trick as, is to know how to sift through that information so that you're focusing on getting certain information, not all information. And that's one of the things that the war on terror diluted and and had people uh, work away from that hopefully is being somewhat um, restored, although I don't know. So all I'm saying is that's, an, that's a, a more concrete example of how the idea of what the founders thought about in terms of individual suspicion um, is so much about what actually helps a nation know who might do it harm.
0: Yeah, the idea of building a bigger haystack so you can find a needle better, which just sounds like what they wanted to do with the metadata gathering. Yes. It, it just, it, it, it's not realistic. It just doesn't work. Now, back to the Diane Feinstein report, it's amazing to me that an executive summary could be 500 pages. That's a little interesting in and of itself. But they they did a lot of work. Uh, they did. And, and you say that uh, they declared the CIA personnel— aided by two outside contractors, which is an interesting situation, these contractors, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, decided to initiate a program of indefinite secret intention and the use of brutal interrogation techniques in violation of U.S. law, treaty obligations, and our values. If they violated the law, um, shouldn't they be prosecutions? Have there been any?
1: No. But but Jessen and Mitchell, the two outside contractors, the two psychologists that were used to design the program, having had no interrogation um, exp- experience prior to that, um, and who were paid $89 million out of uh, an original um, promise of 180 plus million dollars, anyway, um, are now facing um, uh, suits in, in court, and um, we'll see what happens with those. And the courts are letting these go forward. And so um, that's to be determined. But but the more interesting question is, will any officials ever be tried? And it's been the express policy of the Obama and the Bush administration not to have that happen, mm-hmm. um, which may prove to be short-sighted in the long run. Um, because what you don't want is a return to, to um, a kind of brutality that is not just unconstitutional, illegal, um, immoral, but which also um, uh, is, is, has backlash uh, possibilities that are immense, not just in terms of alienating the rest of the world, um, but also in terms of making it impossible to use our courts. So that, you know, 9-11... Perpetrators, co-conspirators, alleged co-conspirators, have been in U.S. custody for over 10 years. They are held at Guantanamo Bay. They are facing military charges, and they haven't had a trial. And a large part of why they haven't had that trial is that the kind of evidence that's available is evidence from torture. So really, as a country that's supposed to be the preeminent rule of law, human rights, and civil liberties country in the world, as that country tries to try the individ- to prosecute the individuals responsible for 9-11. They can't. They can't because they have tortured evidence, witnesses who were tortured, um, it- defendants who were tortured. It's a mess. And so those trials haven't even started. They've been in t- pretrial hearings for ages. And who knows when and if they will
0: actually start. Uh, blind justice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah that's a different book <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but you know as as we see you know justice for some uh, you know it it seems to vary a little bit i i on this show talk a fair amount about history learning from history it seems like one thing i've learned from history is that we never learn from history the lessons of vietnam were incredibly obvious do not try to force our will on other nations against their will We've just refused to learn that lesson. You write that, quote, the biggest lesson of 9-11 has yet to be learned. What's actually lawful and mindful of liberty has turned out to be what also makes us more secure against our enemies, end of quote. Do you get the sense that we, we are, in fact, learning this lesson? And, and talk about what this lesson might really be. <laughs>
1: I don't get the sense we're learning it because it's so, it's so, it's taken, it takes a long time to figure out what the lessons are. You know, the lessons Hmm. of something sort of hit you over the head, who knows how much longer. And, and, and so it's going to be a long uphill battle to sort of show that and to be able to say, don't you see that relying on our smarts, relying on our law enforcement to be focused, relying on the idea that there is such a thing as evidence if somebody's going to be considered an, a, a criminal, that all of these things are available. I, I come back to what we were talking about before. I do think that rebuilding trust in the capacity of this country to keep its citizens safe is immensely important. And as a core of all of these things, and that that's the first step. And then after that, we can figure out how to learn the lessons that we've learned. But first, law enforcement and the powers that be have to make it clear that they are doing some things that are more lawful, more moral, more civil liberties oriented, and that these are working. And they have to be able to make that point. And until that happens, why would anybody learn it?
0: I suppose, yeah. yeah. You have an interesting observation here. You say it's not from a position of strength that these intrusive, unconstitutional uh, uh, measures uh, were taken. It is a sign of weakness. They were clear expressions of fear and a lack of confidence in the traits that America had prided itself on since its inception. Talk about that, if you would, please, how they are uh, signs of, uh, of weakness. And, and we all know that when people act out of fear, it's usually, uh, it doesn't generally have uh, positive results.
1: You know, 9-11 really was, it was considered an intelligence failure, and it was. Yeah. It was an intelligence failure of massive proportions. Now, there are many who would say, and the record has come out slowly, that actually a lot of the intelligence was there. Yes. That it, it was, was just a matter of... It, the National Security Council actually listening to what they were being told. Yes. That instead of, you know, a White House strategy of don't tell us anything, mm-hmm. that they were actually listening to threats about, you know, the use of, of planes as weapons, about what al-Qaeda's intentions were, what bin Laden wanted to do. So it's, it's it, it was an intelligence failure in a very unusual way. It was also somewhat a bureaucratic intelligence failure. Um, and, and it's it's very hard to fail at that level and to just keep going.
0: Mm.
1: And to re, you want to talk about rebuilding trust, rebuilding confidence. It's hard. It's not an easy thing to do, but we have to want to do it first. And the problem is that we've stayed in a reactive mode for fifteen years. Yes. Um, some of that is um, understandable and important, but but there has to be a sense of greater. Um, safety before um, you can turn to these other things. And there should be a, a sense of greater safety. I mean, it's been 15 years where less than 100 people have been killed in the name of terrorism. Um, many more die of of other things, including guns, sure. drugs, um, around the country. I'm not minimizing it, but what I'm saying is that it's part of a a larger question and a and a larger issue, and we really do need to start addressing it.
0: The knee jerk reaction to terrorism has been obvious and has largely failed. We can't do nothing to protect ourselves from terrorist attacks. How can we, Karen Greenberg? What do you think? Well, how can we actually make Americans safer? What can we realistically do as, you know, at the same time that we're, we're keeping to our traditions and our principles and that which makes us really strong?
1: Well, a lot of things that we are doing, we can have much more focused uh, sense of who might be our enemy and who might want to harm us, and we can have much less fear of teenagers and learn how mm-hmm. to handle... These ISIS cases are not like al-Qaeda cases of people who went abroad and trained, ISIS cases in the United States, or individuals with um, criminal records. These are, for the most part, late adolescent men who ha- either are Muslim or converted to Islam, who are have a tendency to want to carry a gun. Many have tried to join the military. We need to think about how we're treating our young men and guide them so that they are not going to go down this road. And we need to guide them earlier and catch them earlier before they feel the kind of um, dislocation and identity crisis, etc., that... People across the border feeling we're we're naming the ISIS ones, but have you not noticed the amount of violence violence in America in the past couple of years? Yes. So I think we need to, if you, if you want Americans to be safer, to feel safer, they're going to have to be safer. And the safety is not necessarily from terrorism; it's from understanding the the fissures in our own society at this point. And then on the other side, mm. rethinking about the state actor. And so we have we have some big challenges.
0: That's true. They don't seem to be largely state actors. It sure was easy back in the Second World War. It's not like that anymore. But, I, 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 go ahead. But now we have a return
1: to state actors, and so we have an extra—not that it ever went away, but but there are some massive inter um issues that we're confronting right now in Syria, yeah. or, or throughout the Middle East, with Russia— um, and so I think we need to to really start to think about security in some rather old-fashioned ways for the, this new century.
0: And I got to ask, it does look like Hillary Clinton. I, if unless something amazing happens, she's probably going to be president. What do we know about her attitude toward effectively fighting terrorism and any concerns she may have about you know protecting our, our traditional uh, freedoms and uh, you know the constitutional liberties? What do we know about Hillary Clinton on this? Let me story?
1: tell you one thing about it. Well, for one thing, we, we know that she's no naive when it comes to the world and what yes. uh, state actors are capable of. That, there's no question. This is a, she has a f- sophisticated understanding of who, how the world works and what the players are. That's number one. Number two, something that people don't often talk about, but that I've kind of threaded through this conversation, um, is that Hillary Clinton, when she talks about caring about children and families, she means it. And if you want to know what is going to, let's, we're talking in this country now, safety and security, what is going to make us safer citizens? It is going to be taking care of our children and making sure that they do not become angry, violent, alienated, disenfranchised individuals by the time they're in their late teens. And the kind of things mm-hmm. he talks about and has always talked about address those issues. So... Yes, there's the foreign policy issue because she definitely has done her homework and paid her dues in the in the foreign policy world. But at home, there's also an issue, and I think that that I think we could expect a lot from her um, in that in that dimension. I think it's a very important dimension.
0: It's always nice to end on a positive, upbeat note. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for being with us, Karen Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Her new book is. Uh, Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Someone will be waiting for you at your door And you get them tonight Oh yes, he's gonna tell you darkness gives you much more Than you get from the light Plants, plastic eyeballs are special Plastic copters, they're your special Friends They see you every night Well they call themselves Protection, but you know it's no game You're never out of their sight